happy Saturday. It is February 5th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker. And I'm Michael Haney. And we are two of your deputy editors here at Airmail. Welcome to the show. It's February. Actually, I almost went back in my hole like Puxatawney Phil, almost sort of like thought maybe Tom Brady's retirement this week was a sign that we should all go into the hole, but I'm here. I'm excited to be with you. It's February. We're going to roll up our sleeves and get through this. Always sort of, they say April's the cruelest month. I think February's the cruelest month. Honey, if I have to come over to your apartment in the village and drag you out into the world again, I'll do it. Don't tempt me. All right. I'm waiting. But I agree with you. Like, these times feel like too much to bear. Okay, we're not going to talk about Jeff Zucker's sex life, although I'm curious. We are not going to talk about Russia. We're definitely not going to talk about Trump and the voting machines. We will leave those to other podcasts. I think instead we're just going to leave this decade behind us entirely and go back to the 90s. But Chuck Klosterman has written this fabulous new book. It's called The 90s. Chuck is an essayist, a novelist, a thinker. He was a column for the New York Times on ethics of all things. And he's written this really great book that takes us back to the 90s and helps explain who we are, Michael, who you and I are, as well as other of our compatriots from that generation. I was just struck by how different the values are, right? Like this whole slacker culture in the 1990s and this notion that selling out was the cardinal sin of existence are so foreign to generations today. Like being a slacker is no longer something to aspire to. Selling out is the modus operandi for most members of Gen Z, right? Like it's just interesting to think about how would you explain the career of an Instagram influencer to a member of Nirvana in 1994. Like, what would that conversation have been like? It's just, it gave me some insight into myself, Michael, as to like why I'm so conflicted over the role of social media and how people, including people I love and respect, interact with it. But isn't a slacker today's version of someone who's participating in the great resignation? So, yeah, maybe. I mean, like, look, you're right. It could be just like the different side of the coin. But in the 90s, like a slacker was sort of seen as a term of endearment of someone who was pursuing a creative path, right, versus a, an explicitly commercial one. And I was in high school in the 90s. Like, I just remember the thing I was always worried about in the 90s was like, am I a sellout? And also like selling out, like I'm babysitting. Like, what am I selling? But I worked at Banana Republic in high school and I was like, oh God, I'm such a sellout. I'm working at Banana Republic. And you never want to, like this sort of anti-corporate bias that like so many people from that generation had. And anyway, so Chuck Klosterman in his new book, The 90s, he contextualizes all of this in such really smart ways. And so I have to say, I loved it. If you are looking for an escape from contemporary culture and you're wary of the fact that so many of us have just become mindless marketers for consumer brands, shilling ourselves on Instagram, go back to the 90s. Remember, authenticity was not as glamorous as it seemed. That's true. You know where I'd like to go next? Tell me. You know, it was has been eternal from the, whether it was the 90s or the 70s or the 80s in New York and even up until the pandemic, a little thing called the Euro trash. Oh, the Euro trash. Honey, let's go talk about this over a glass of white wine at Cipriani downtown. What do you got? Well, what I got is a very clever piece of reporting and analysis this week from Elena Claverino, who asks, so it's sort of a twist on the old thing of a tree falls in the forest. Is it something like a sound? And it's sort of like now asking, is there such a thing as New York without Euro trash? And the Euro trash would sort of define this era. And they, they sort of first came to New York back in the 70s when the young scions of aristocratic families flew over from the old continent masterfully. Socialism, Italy's Red Brigades, Spain's Franco, France's Communist Party, and not to mention their conservative relatives. They showed up here, the early 
arrivals were Albert of Monaco, Princess Chantelle of France, Bianca Jagger, and they all sort of set up camp on the Upper East Side. And from the 70s through the 80s and 90s, even until recently, they had their own influence on New York social scene. But they all decamped when the virus hit. And now many of them are slow to return. And as Elena sort of wonders, will they come back? And if they don't, what does it mean to New York? So how do you feel? Do you think we need your trash back? I think we do. And I miss the smell of Golois like wafting along 8th Street. Look, here's the deal. Your trash might have a negative connotation to some. At Airmail, it's a term of endearment. We love you. We miss you. We want you back. Please spend money. Your shopping is very important to the health and wealth of the city. So we hope that they'll come back because frankly, what's always made New York so great is the diversity of voices and backgrounds and opinions and the sheer amalgamation of all these interesting people in the street. So we want them all back in full force. The sooner, the better. Thank you very much. Okay. They add a certain layer. They keep Coke dealers making money. Oh, Michael. (laughs) Stereotypes again. Don't do it. Okay, so while we're on the subject of wealthy globetrotters with dubious backgrounds, take us through the latest and greatest with Army Hammer. Oh, Army Hammer? Speaking of, yeah, you might remember Army Hammer, the sort of one-time leading man who you might remember most from the film Call Me By Your Name. Well, last year he was accused of rape as well as abusive coercive behavior, including cannibalistic fantasies with multiple extramarital partners. That matter is now in the hands of a district attorney in California. And he, just before all that happened, starred in a film directed by Kenneth Branagh. And it was the Disney movie Death on the Nile, which after two years and six release dates is about to open next week on February 11th. Now, it presents a little bit of a problem for Disney because Hammer's reputation has, as I said, sort of taken a bit of a bite out of it. No, well, I guess there's a pun intended there. And as a result of all these charges, he was dropped from a J-Lo romantic comedy. He lost a role in the TV series, The Offer, which is about the making of The Godfather. But now... There's Disney kind of trying to get this movie out into the public. So it's going to be interesting to see how Disney wheels this movie out here with many people still looking at Hammer and thinking, isn't that the guy who has fantasies about eating women he's dating? Michael, don't kink shame him now. (laughs) For everyone that thinks it's a kink shame, there's probably like two people out there like, I wish he'd call me because I'd be up for that. All right, we're not going to get into this, Michael. It's a family show here, okay? We're not going to talk about that. But let's pivot to, by the way, another bit of film box office news. First of all, Woody Allen apparently has a new movie out. Who knew? And it had terrible box office. Apparently, 1600 bucks was all it raked in in opening weekend in New York. Times have changed for Woody. So that was kind of an interesting little tidbit I saw in the post. I sent it to one of my friends who used to like Woody Allen. And he was like, thank God you still read the post. I'm like, well, yeah, of course. They got all the good goss. I just want to get to, speaking of bad behavior, I want to get to bad grifters and badly behaving billionaires. Just like on this note, I feel like all we talk about lately is badly behaving billionaires and grifters. But I think it's just endemic of the moment, right? It's like coronavirus and grifters. Like these are the two things we can't seem to get rid of right now in our culture. So Michael and I look as forward to the rest of you as talking about other things. But for now, this is what we have to work with. Well, and for now, I think it's a bit of the Weimar Republic feeling that we're in. So it's all these things that just sort of, in years, we said last year when Bezos and Musk, their personal worth went into the hundreds of billions. How can you not want to talk about the impact that's having on society? Yes, indeedy. 
Okay, so who's our next grifter? All right, well, I want to start with, if you live here in New York City, you're familiar with a building called 432 Park Avenue, which is one of the buildings that are these known as these stiletto towers. They're very slim and tall. And this was built. It's on Billionaire's Row, and it's on a square block bordered by Park and Madison Avenues and 5657th Street. And it was designed 85 stories tall. It's claimed to be the tallest residential apartment building in the world. Well, the problem with it is, you know what billionaires don't like? They don't like when they pay for something. They think they're getting really exclusive apartment buildings. And maybe they end up like other New Yorkers, which is like, hey, this bathroom's kind of leaky. Or, hey, how come the windows don't seal as much as they should? So shortly after it opened, there are these, and people like A-Rod, and who spent $15 million on a 4,000-square-foot apartment, and other people came in, they started to notice there were severe flaws with it and started to file these complaints about horrible and intrusive noise violations, water floods, trash chutes that sound like a bomb. And they brought these all to the attention of Harry Macklow, the very famous and wealthy real estate developer. And now it's become, as you might say, kind of a mess. So these are the kinds of apartments like Kendall Roy would live in, right? In succession. Yeah, or Kendall Roy's son, maybe, right? It's got to hurt, right? I mean, you spend 40 bill and you think you're getting something of value, but no, it's all like monopoly money. Like this ultra high end New York real estate market has never been tethered to reality. And it seems like finally it's getting its comeuppance and the press is relishing it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people in New York are relishing it just because, look, there used to be We love the skyline in New York, right? And whether it's the Empire State Building, of course, the New World Trade Center, there had always been these classic designs on the skyline. You know, you'd be coming in from JFK on the LIE, you'd look towards the city and see like, there it is. You come in now on the LIE, you look towards the city, you're like, I can't even, half the time, the Empire State Building is hidden by one of these new sort of weird spikes that have just come in on the skyline. Not to mention, there's also the ones that are all doing something which was never supposed to be done, which is on the southern side of Central Park South. They are casting shadows now on the park, which again, was always never meant to happen. So I think a lot of New Yorkers are taking a certain glee in the fact that these places are either flawed or not able to sell their apartments to whatever Kazakhstanian billionaire wants to shield his money. Okay, now, before we go any further, you've been talking about this millennial Madoff. He sounds too delicious to be true. Tell me more. This is just a crazy story. Thanks again to Bill Cohan, our intrepid sort of chronicler of all things Wall Street excess. And this one is what we call Madoff the sequel. It's about a failed actor from Indiana named Zach Horwitz, who got to LA and when he realized his acting career wasn't going to take off in about 2014, the then 28-year-old unleashed a Ponzi scheme and on his friends and he eventually soaked them out of about $227 million. Talk about thinking big. When Bernie Madoff was at his peak, going peak Ponzi, he tantalized thousands of unwitting investors in believing they could get a return of 10% a year every year if they were lucky to get him to just take their money. Well, when Zach Horowitz was thinking about his Ponzi scheme, he thought, you know what? This is almost like the Zuckerberg moment in Social Network where he's like, you know, it's not cool. And it's not a million, it's a billion, right? So he thinks you got to have something sexier than a 10% bump on stocks to appeal to his millennial targets. 
So his Ponzi scheme promised investors returns of anywhere from 25 to 45% in just six months by investing in movie distribution deals that he faked. He'd forge all these Netflix agreements and other things claiming he was working on these movies that were going to get distribution around the world. So he's going to be sentenced in the next couple of weeks facing, oh, a nice chunk of time in prison. God, it seems like all the cool people are in prison these days. Now, is Anna Delvey still there? Well, I don't know, but that's a great pivot to our next segment, isn't it? Aha. Uh-huh. So we've got Rachel Williams joining us today. Rachel was an editor in the photo department at Vanity Fair, and she was a close friend of Anna Delvey's. And she has since come out and written a book called My Friend Anna about the relationship that she had with New York's most famous fraud du moment, Anna Delvey. And there's a new Netflix show about the life of Anna coming out on Netflix on February 11th. And in advance, Rachel is going to tell us all about what it was like to hang with Anna when the times were good. So welcome, Rachel. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So take us back six or seven years ago. When did you first meet Anna Delvey? I met Anna in 2016 when I was just out one evening with friends in Lower Manhattan. So it's been a while, but here we are still talking about it today. So for those who don't know the story and might be exposed to it for the first time on Netflix. Give us a fair summary as she turned out to be, would you call her a grifter, a con woman, a confidence woman, or how would you describe her? I would say all all of the above. So I met Anna when I was in my late 20s, just out one night. She already knew the group of girls I was out with. So I was introduced to her through friends and we struck up not, I mean, she wasn't a best friend, but we had a close friendship and over the course of like several months, spent a lot of time together. And I struck up a fast friendship with this person who ended up being a con artist. And I learned the hard way after she invited me on a trip to Morocco and then stuck me with a bill that was more than I made in a year and proceeded to string me along for months, promising reimbursement was forthcoming. And of course, after that never arrived, given that I didn't have some trust fund or something to fall back on, it wasn't something I could just ignore. And I ended up picking apart this veil that this illusion she had created, this character that wasn't real. And I learned that actually she was someone totally different than what I had believed. And I worked with the police to set up a sting. She ended up getting arrested. And there's a try. The truth is stranger than fiction. But also in this instance, the truth is fiction. So they set up a sting. She was arrested. She was convicted, sent to prison. I think for five years, she ended up serving, what, two? She was sentenced to four to 12 years, and she served for three. Wait, now she's going to be on Netflix. Her story, which intersects with your story, which I think is the, as you write in this week's edition of Maramel, that's sort of a complex thing, in part because Netflix was sort of paying for her even before she was out of prison, right? Right. Before she even was sentenced to prison. In fact, before her trial even began. And I don't, it's hard because of course, like entertainment is not bad. Like entertainment is fun. I understand people are going to watch the show. I get it. It'll probably be like a great thing. I mean, it's Shonda Rhimes, right? It's Julia Gardner. It's all of these very splashy, appealing things. And it's a story that has scandal and New York society and all of these buzzwords that make it so irresistible. It's this great illusion, the spectacle that's created for your viewing pleasure. But 
that's also exactly sort of what pulled me in to friendship with Anna in the first place was kind of this thing that you, you can't quite look away from, even though you know there are parts of it that are maybe like there's more than meets the eye, but you just don't know what you know what's happening. And I just think it's important to question what's going on behind the scenes of content like this, behind the scenes in real life, and where are these stories coming from and who do they impact and how. So Rachel, tell us exactly when things started to go so wrong between you and Anna and just sort of take us through how you became instrumental in the operation to get her put away. I think in a little, in a little more detail, if you can. Well, I met Anna, like when we, I met her a year before she and I became closer friends and, and she had gone away overstaying a visa because she wasn't a U.S. citizen. And when she came back in 2017, it was winter. I had just gotten out of a long-term relationship. There's that point in winter where you're suddenly like, I want to, it's like the end of it. And you're like, I'm ready to go out. I want to have fun. I'm newly single. And here is this girl who's just reappeared magically, like a very close walk from my apartment downtown at the time. And she wants to hang out all the time. And she's fun and she's really different than me. And she's bold. And it just was fast. It wasn't that deep. It didn't seem like I, there was anything at risk. It wasn't something I gave a lot of thought to, obviously. It just snowballed. <laughs> so she invited me on this trip to Marrakesh. And it wasn't like it was billed. No one says, would you like to come on an all expenses paid vacation that costs this extraordinary amount of money? Looking back, we see that it's this like absurd thing that who would ever accept that kind of grandiosity? Like it wasn't like that. It's like she invited me and a videographer and, and a trainer and, and she kind of concocted this thing that grew as it went along. And it wasn't until I got there and we're towards the end of this trip that suddenly things start falling away in the veil that's been in front of me as I believed this. I was under the influence of somebody I trusted. And then ultimately, when I realized the hotel had no functioning form of payment on file and I was pressured to provide my cards and at the time really felt there was no alternative, I had no choice. That's when things definitely took a big turn. And then, of course, it got worse from there when no reimbursement was coming my way after months of fake wire transfer numbers and endless streams of the worst sort of texts. So what was the last contact that you had with her? The last contact I had with her was in October of 2017 when I ultimately ended up working with the police to set up a con, inviting her to lunch in Los Angeles. And when you look back at it, if you had to advise someone, hey, here's one sign that someone might be a grifter or a con woman, what would be the alarm that might go off in your head again? Yeah, I wish the tell were that obvious. I think if it were, these sorts of stories wouldn't happen as frequently as they definitely do. I think part of what happens and part of what I would say is a red flag is there is this sort of superficial charm and this charisma that you cannot quite discern the origin of. It is a little bit hard to place. It pulls you in and there's no substance behind it. And I think it's that kind of ambiguity that pulls you in closer, kind of the way you might feel if you're walking down the street and see someone doing a magical trick. It's that same kind of thing where you're watching it, trying to figure out like, what's going on here? And that's how you miss what's actually happening. Aside from that, something that's probably like less enigmatic would be the fact that she, as far as I could tell, had no long-term relationships or friendships around her. There wasn't anyone I saw her with or heard her talk about that she had a positive lasting connection. 
to or healthy relationship with. She isolated herself. I just want to say thank you to Rachel and I can't wait to see the show and I hope we can talk to you again after we've seen a couple episodes. Very nice to meet you both. Thank you. (sighs) Well, with friends like those, who really needs enemies? Don't you find yourself like you read enough of these stories and it, you just always think there's sometimes like you look around at people you know and you think like I'm so slow to trust people, shocker to people who know me like and to let people in. But then you think like maybe I'm not crazy to sort of like proceed slowly because you never know. We've lived in New York long enough that we've been burned. You're like, wait, that guy's not actually your uncle. It's your sugar daddy that you met on an app. Okay. Never mind. Like, I mean, these people are a dime a dozen in the city. That's what, again, we like them all. It takes all kinds to make New York so magical. So, and give us things to talk about. So we love it. But yes, it is a little jarring to hear stories like that. All right. Well, on a slightly more superfluous note, we couldn't let the 40th anniversary of the Sloan Ranger handbook go by unannounced. This was a book that came out in the UK 40 years ago now, this month, and it was a sensation. It was sort of like the official preppy handbook before a certain subset of Brits. And we have none other than Rachel Johnson, the journalist, TV commentator, author, and fabulous person extraordinaire to tell us all about what a Sloan Ranger is and why people still care. Welcome. Thank you for having me again. Okay, so let's start off with the bare basics. What is a Sloan Ranger? Well, I mean, speaking as the uh, now the official dean of Sloan Studies, having done this piece for you guys, the Sloan Ranger was invented about 40 years ago by Harper's and Queen magazine when Anne Barr and Peter York decided they had identified a new and so far unknown tribe in London and obviously in the Shires of mainly women who wore Hermes or Gucci scarves knotted under the chin, which gave them the Lone Ranger kind of look. Loafers, sensible skirts called uh, names that ended in A. And they did an article for the for Harpers and Queen, and it went totally viral, even though, of course, it was this was pre-internet. And they went to dinner parties and people were talking about these women. And so they gave a name and they were called Sloan Rangers. And the whole thing just took off. And then they added in the male of the tribe, which was a Hooray Henry or a Ra. And they added more and more. And then it became a book by Anne Barr and Peter York. It sold a million copies. And now we're obviously celebrating all over the United Kingdom and Poshtasha and all the places in the country where people hunt and shoot and fish and uh, love their Labrador more than their parents are all celebrating this historic moment. So what are the key tenets of being a Sloan Ranger? Key tenets, well, as I said, loving your nanny and your dog more than your parents, speaking in a certain way, being old money, going to boarding school in the country from the age of about eight. And there are sort of 10 or so Sloan Ranger redoubts like Charterhouse or St. Mary's Calm. Having a house in the country, putting the country, the country being more important than town. And when you are in town, the Sloan Ranger gravitates. The centres of gravity are Chelsea, Fulham, pubs called things like the White Horse, which is known as the Sloaney Pony, the Admiral Codrington in London. I mean, the Sloan Ranger tribe was identified when Peter York and Abba realised that all these things were basically a way of signalling to other Sloanes that you were a Sloan, like going skiing to Val d'Isere. I'm trying to think what else shooting, all of those country sports are very, very Sloan. 
wearing your grandfather's tweeds. I mean, old money, not new money. And of course, that's why we've seen the Sloan sort of die out, because new money's poured into London and it's displaced the Sloan's. They've had like the bath running over and they've had to kind of float out into the outer suburbs like Queen's Park or, or Ravenscourt Park or Wandsworth. So they've become peripheral to their former hunting grounds. And so when they are congregating, they go back to their hunting grounds in Slo- around Sloan Square, Chelsea, etc. And the art kind of gala events of the Sloan, just to finish, are Wimbledon, the rugby at Twickenham, game fairs, point to points, Cheltenham races. And then you see them all, they suddenly come out of the woodwork and they gather together and it's a sea of green tweed, a sea of pink trousers. And these are their great gala occasions. They haven't gone away. They always come back. I want some faces. Uh, Who were the original well-known Sloan Rangers and who are they now? Like, let's name some names here. Well, that's tricky because people... I mean, in a sense, they were generic to begin with. Their names began, started with F and ended in A, like Fiona and Fenella. Princess Diana, when she was Lady Diana, was a Sloan because she wore mid-calf floaty skirts and sensible shoes and V-neck jerseys and pie-crust collars. And that was a sort of Sloan uniform. And also all her, her friends were Sloans, called things like Venetia, and they taught at nursery school. When Princess Diana became the most famous woman in the world and a fashion icon, she was definitely no longer a Sloan. She was a sort of turbo Sloan, I suppose. But she transcended Sloandom once she became Princess Diana. She was still an iconic Sloan in the sense that people wanted to look like Diana. She you know, had the kind of flicky fringe and the dewy eye and the sort of quite heavy mascara. I mean, that was still a very Sloan look. Okay, Rachel, when Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, was simply Camilla Shand, was she a Sloan? Oh, my God, she was a Sloan. Oh, yes, good spot. (laughs) God love her. You're right. I mean, she is, in a way, the queen of Sloans now, because obviously Princess Diana sadly died in 97. So I think, yes, she has inherited the mantle of the queen of Sloans. I think it's so interesting that this 40th anniversary has received so much hullabaloo, right? This is a book that's been out of print for decades now. What, how do, what do you make of this nostalgia for this particular time or the fact that these traditions are still being clung to despite all the change that's happening in society? I think it's very simple. I think that the world of the Sloan has been under siege from everybody and everything, from social media, TikTok, all of that overexposure of your lives to the incursion, the invasion of new money, Russian oligarchs, Chinese or Indian billionaires have all, as it were, placed the qualities of the Sloan under attack. But what I think people are recognising is what the Sloan stands for, which is a certain way of doing things, old furniture, old country pursuits, the traditional schools, the traditional education, the traditional professions from estate agency to management to Christie's and Sotheby's, all these things actually represent something eternal about Englishness and the United Kingdom, just as the Queen does. And so I think there's a kind of huge surge of nostalgia and celebration around this anniversary because it speaks to something so reassuring and we all need that right now. I love it, Rachel. Well, we can't wait to see you again in London, probably at the Wolseley. And thank you so much for this wonderful story and for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, both of you, for having me. I really enjoyed it. 
Now I'm thirsting to go back to London. You fit right in in London. I like it there. I'm happy there. One day. It's a good thing. One day I'm going to live in London for a year. Just a year. Okay, great. Well, Michael, on that note, before we head off into this all too short weekend, do you have anything at all you can recommend? I do. Before I get there, I just realized when I was looking at the news before we came in here, I would be remiss if I didn't note the passing a great lives of Monica Vitti, the queen of Italian cinema. I think many of you, if you listened to me over lockdown, I told you I was kind of in this Antonioni film festival. And she was the star of the trio of his three greatest films, I think, which were La Ventura, La Notte, and La Clisse. And if you haven't seen them, you heard me talk about them. If if you've been listening to the show, you've heard me talk about them. But she is, I think, no one captivated on the screen quite like Viti. She had this presence that was just luminous, this mysterious gaze. And she had a way of, I think, becoming a cinema icon that was, at the same time, you can't imagine these films without her. So I particularly love her performance in La Note and La Clise. But if you've got looking for something this weekend to do, to be very 90s, put one of them in your VCR machine or call them up on, they're available on Apple and Netflix and other places. And I would start with those. But then the one recommendation I do have comes courtesy of our theater critic, John Lahr, speaking of London, Ashley, and he is reporting from London on a revival of Cabaret at London's Playhouse Theater, which is going there until October 1. And you spoke earlier about these strange times we live in, the very Weimar Republic end of the old order. He's got a great rave about it. It stars Eddie Redmayne in what he says is a thrilling interpretation. And he says, Redmayne uncoils before us as if he slithered out from under a rock a pale androgynous demiurge, a cross between Peter Lorre and Peter Pan, and it's an insinuating, lascivious angel of delight. He co-stars in it with Jesse Buckley, who plays Sally Bowles, and he says it's just a scintillating show, a spectacle of the next generation's theatrical talent on The Ascendant. So if you're in London between now and October 1st, Ashley, I have a feeling you will be. Let's put that on the list. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And you, my dear, what will you tell us all to look out for? Well, God, we look like helpless anglophiles here, but it's true. I just have to be myself after all. Okay. I can't get enough of the season two of All Creatures Great and Small. It has returned to PBS, Masterpieces, but for those of us in the U.S., you can get it on Amazon Prime Video. This is just such an incredible series. The original inspiration for this series was the novels of James Harriet, who was a veterinarian in the Yorkshire Dales, working with an older and more experienced mentor. And first of all, this is like Downton Abbey, but like country edition, right? It's essentially the story of two vets in one of the most beautiful places on earth that are going from farm to estate to everywhere in between, looking at animals, talking to people, and entertaining us all the while. I just love this show so much. It is the balm for these troubled times. And it's got some incredible performances in it, most notably by Samuel West, who plays the elder veterinarian, Farnan, Siegfried Farnan. And couldn't recommend this enough. If you watch it and you hate it, I'll take you out to dinner. I just don't think you're going to hate it. I think you're going to love it. It's like going on a lovely trip to Yorkshire without even leaving the comfort of your house. It's just a charmer. If you watch it and you hate it, you're not alive. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, you love it too, right? I mean, how it's animals in pastoral, beautiful, bucolic British countryside. How do you not feel like 
at peace and optimistic when you're watching this? Yeah, it's like nothing bad really happens. Like the worst thing that happens is like Harriet's got to stick his arm up the wrong end of a cow. Like that's life. It's what happens. But it's a good Kansas farm girl. You're used to that. Come on. Oh, honey, 100%. Let's go. Fixing the breech birth in the cow, you? No problem. Done. Samuel West, by the way, did our perfect ending questionnaire in airmail a few weeks ago. And I thought his was one of the best ever. And we've had great people do that questionnaire. Tom Ford has done it, Giorgio Armani. But I thought Samuel West's answers were so hysterical and cool. It just made me want to hang out with him. So maybe maybe he'll hang out with us at the Wolseley the next time we're in London. A girl can dream. A girl can dream. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us. It's so much fun to spend Saturday with you, and we really appreciate you taking the time. So, Michael, on that note, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify. But most of all, thank you for joining us.